This is Real Estate Rookie episode 318. We all love seller financing. Makes things way easier most of the time than going to a bank and doing conventional financing. Say the house is worth $300,000. Say I agree to buy her property and it's like a $2,000 a month payment. Now she's only paying taxes on $24,000 a year versus the $300,000 per year that she'd get if she sold the property. My name is Ashley Kerr and I'm here with my co-host, Tony J. Robinson. And welcome to the Real Estate Rookie Podcast, where every week, twice a week, we give you the inspiration, motivation, and stories you need to hear to kickstart your investing journey. And uh, today, we are back with another Rookie Reply. Uh, As always, we're we're happy to answer questions from the the Rookie audience. And if you want to get your question featured on the show, head over to biggerpockets.com slash reply, and we just might choose your question for an episode. Uh, So Ash, uh, I guess really quick, give me me an update. What's going on in in Ashley Ashley Care's uh, world today? Well... For the first time ever, one of my real estate friends that I have met across the country, I've met a lot of real estate people. Someone is coming to visit me in Buffalo, New York. Going all the way to Canada to come hang out with Ashley <laughs> for a couple of days. Had to get his passport, you know? Yeah, literally only for two days, but I'll take it. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, super excited about that. Um, it's coming in this week and I'm going to show him some of my properties and Hopefully do some fun stuff. Yeah. And you just had your baby shower. We did. We had the baby shower. Yeah. So uh, Sarah's due here just in a, in a few short weeks now. I think we're about seven weeks away. Wow. Uh, so so time is time is ticking. So uh, we we had a house full of gifts uh, the day after the baby shower. So we're, we're like starting to build stuff and we got to get the, the nursery painted. So you got to build an addition on just to fit all, <laughs> yeah, just to fit stuff. all the stuff. Yeah. Um, and then uh, my my son actually started his sophomore year of high school today, also. So just oh lots of lots of stuff going on in the in the Robinson household uh, this week when it comes to the the kiddos. But yeah, yeah exciting cool. times. We're we're happy for it. Yeah, awesome. Well, on this week's rookie reply, we have five great questions. We're gonna go through a couple of them, even pertain to partnerships. So if you guys haven't already, check out our new book, Real Estate Partnerships. You can go to biggerpockets.com slash partnerships. And you guys can even get a discount if you use the code Tony or Ashley. Okay, so one of the questions that we talk about is seller financing. So if you've been wondering how to structure seller financing, what are some of the pros and cons and what you should do as far as approaching a seller about seller financing, we kind of do a little mini breakdown of the tax advantages for a seller and also how to present the seller financing to the seller too. Yeah, we also talk a little bit about like closing costs. Like, hey, what are typical closing costs in a real estate transaction? Who pays for what between the buyer and the seller? And uh, we also talk about like, hey, just if I want to invest in real estate, what is kind of my roadmap of steps? What should I do first? What should I do second? And we break that down. So overall, uh, lots of good questions. Excited to get into those. Before we jump over to the questions, though, I would love to get a shout out to someone that left us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, this person goes by the name of Scotty Dude 2314 uh, But Scotty says, every time I run into a situation, I come back here, look for the episode that relates to that situation listed, take notes and execute. Thanks so much for y'all's help. Closing on my first 12 plugs this month. And he says, constantly coming back for more knowledge. Uh, so Scotty, dude, appreciate you and, and kudos to you on, on getting that first 12 unit under contract. And just, just last piece of Scotty makes uh, an incredibly important point. We have hundreds of episodes of the rookie podcast. 
And I can almost guarantee that most situations you might find yourself in has probably been solved and thoroughly discussed on some episode of the Ricky podcast. So if you ever find yourself stuck, you've obviously got the Bigger Pockets forums, the Facebook groups, but don't sleep on the 317 episodes that came before this one that have tons of information about your real estate journey. So be sure to check them out, use them as a resource, and uh, share it with someone that might uh, benefit from it as well. Okay. So today we have an Instagram shout out to Artina Marie. So Artina, A-R-T-I-N-A, Marie, M-A-R-I-E. You can follow her on Instagram at her name. And she is a serial entrepreneur obsessed with passive income and sharing her real estate journey. So go and give her a follow and check out her Instagram and follow along her journey. Are current interest rates making you depressed about cash flow? What if it didn't have to be that way? Rent to Retirement has 2.99% seller financing available on turnkey properties. You heard that right. That's a seller financed 2.99% interest rate where the average cash flow is over $900 per month. They also have options where you can put as low as 5% down on multiple investment properties with no PMI. Rent to Retirement is the nation's leading turnkey investment company that understands what it takes to be successful in today's dynamic real estate market. Their reputation speaks for itself with more five-star reviews than any other company on the Bigger Pockets website. Rent to Retirement offers fully turnkey properties that are newly built or renovated, leased and managed, allowing you to invest with confidence in the markets that offer the best returns. To learn more, visit renttoretirement.com. That's rent toretirement.com or text REI to 33777. Again, text REI to 33777. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're trying to close on your next rental, so why is your insurance company dragging its feet? With long lead times and never-ending paper forms, it's no wonder it takes forever to finally get a policy. Modern investors deserve better. They deserve Steadily.com. At Steadily.com, you'll get fast, affordable landlord insurance available online 24-7 in just a few clicks. You can even get next-day coverage, which takes just minutes, by the way, to obtain. And you can do it all from your phone. Steadily was founded by landlords who created insurance products tailored to the unique needs of this industry. It's their sole focus, and that's why landlords nationwide consistently rate them 4.8 out of 5 stars. So whether you've got a single family, short-term, or multifamily portfolio, Steadily.com can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit Steadily.com for a commitment-free quote tailored to your needs today. Okay, today's question is asked by Nicole Marie. Remember, if you would like to submit a rookie reply question, you can go to biggerpockets.com slash reply. So Nicole's question is, what is the first step? My credit score is good. I have about $40,000 to put down. I want to burr a rental property, but I'm stuck trying to figure out if I look for properties, meet with a real estate agent, or get financing first. But then it's like, how do you get financing without a property to give them numbers for? I also can't 
HELOC, do a home equity line of credit or live in it for FHA. So that limits me to conventional or some type of financing that allows the rehab budget in the loan. I've been reading a lot and I'm just confused how you start and take the first step. Okay, so the first thing, awesome, you have a great credit score and that you have some cash, $40,000 to put down. That definitely opens up the doors for you to have available. Then you want to do a BRRRR, a rental property. So remember, BRRRR is buy, rehab, rent, refinance it, and repeat. Um, So the question is, do I start looking for properties, meet with a real estate agent, or get the financing lined up first? So these are actually two things you can do simultaneously. Uh, If you do have your financing and your funding lined up, when you find a property and you're ready to make an offer, it definitely makes it a lot smoother, easier process. Because especially if you're in a hot market and you put in an offer, you're going to have to put in your proof of funds or your proof of financing, how you are going to fund the purchase of this property. And sometimes those offers have to go in quick and being able to go through the pre-approval process may not be quick enough to actually get that for your um, offer letter. So, uh, Tony, let's kind of break down um, as far as her options for doing a loan. So she can't live in it for and get FHA or she had mentioned a home equity line of credit, but you have to actually already own the property and to be able to get the line of credit on the property, you can't get a line of credit to use it um, to purchase unless that line of credit is on another property. So in her current primary residence, if she was able to go and get a HELOC, she could take that money to go and purchase the property. But she's going to say she can't do that and she can't get an FHA loan. So conventional or some other type of financing, but she wants to do uh, the rehab budget in the loan. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's tons of options out there. I mean, we've, uh, we've used a lot of private money to fund our, our, um, rehabs. Ash, I know you, you've used similar and hard money. So those are always good options, uh, Nicole as well in terms of uh, how to kind of make that piece work. But Ash, you mind if I, I just want to even take it like one step back a little bit mm-hmm. and, uh, just kind of give for all of our Rickies kind of the, the framework of, you know, yeah, what just in general, kind of what is, what are those sequence of steps look like? Because obviously we give a lot of content on the podcast and, you know, there's tons of information on YouTube and social, but sometimes it's hard to kind of sequence those different pieces of content correctly. So, you know, what to do first and what to do next. So when, when I think about a brand new investor, someone that, that's, you know, hasn't done anything yet, but they're in that, that kind of early education phase. I think the first thing that you need to do is identify your investing strategy. Now, Nicole, you've already seems like decided on that. Uh, you know that you want to borrow property, so that's a good first step. But for everyone that's listening, the first step is: Do I want to do uh, long-term buy and hold? Do I want to do short-term rentals? Do I want to flip? Do I want to wholesale? Uh, do I want to do you know large syndications? Do I want to do self-storage? Like decide on your your type of investing and your asset class first. Once you've got that piece nailed down, the second step in my mind is to identify what your purchasing power is. So again, Nicole, you, you've kind of alluded to this a little bit already, but generally speaking, your purchasing power is made up of two things. It's the capital that you have available or at least access to invest. Uh, and then it's what kind of loan product can you get approved for? So when you combine how much capital you have to put into an investment with the amount of debt you can get, that lets you know what type of property you can afford buying. 
I think a mistake, uh, Ash, that I see a lot of new investors make is they get all enamored with this certain type of investing strategy with a certain market, then comes out, you know, comes to find out they can only afford, you know, a fraction of what it costs to invest with that strategy in that market. So I think identifying what your purchasing power is first before you do anything, uh, can save you some wasted time because then if you're, you know, say, say that you look at your purchasing power and you've got, you know, half a million dollars in the bank and you've got uh, the ability to get approved for a $5 million loan, that gives you a lot of options. Uh, on the flip side, if you've got, you know, $40,000 to invest and you can get approved for a $250,000 loan, okay, that's going to dictate what kind of markets you can, you can look at while you're looking to invest. So Nicole, you've already kind of taken that first step of identifying the 40K, but yes, I would 100% say understand the financing piece so you don't waste your time looking at properties that you can't necessarily get, get approved for. Once you've gotten your purchasing power, the third step is market selection. And I, I don't think that Nicole in this uh, in this post here, in this question, specifically talked about which market she's looking to invest into. But I think that's an incredibly important piece is the the market selection um, to, to, to really be able to get good at finding deals in that specific market. Because another mistake that we see a lot of investors make, Ash, is that when they first get started, they kind of have this shotgun approach where they're just looking any and everywhere for properties when ideally uh, you want to be able to narrow it down to as small of a, a, a I guess, like a, a radius as you can. So your market selection, and then you can go into like the do, the, the deal flow and the, the due diligence piece. But I just want to give that overview. I mean, Ash, I don't know, is that in line with kind of what you you typically feel makes sense for, for rookies also? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think we can kind of go into as to how she's going to fund the rehab now. That was the the next part of the question and looking for different ways and going through a bank to actually fund the rehab. So Tony, you did do this, correct? On one of your Louisiana houses? Yeah. So my first, uh, my first two or three long-term rentals out in Louisiana, uh, we had a bank. It was a local credit union that funded both the purchase and the rehab of those properties. Now, there were stipulations or, or I guess, you know, uh, boxes we had to check to be able to get approved for that kind of uh, mortgage. Specifically, the purchase price and the rehab had to be no more than like 72% of the after repair value. Uh, but I was able to get funding for both the purchase and the rehab. So Nicole, there are banks out there that will give you uh, that type of loan product. I think it's just a matter of picking up the phone and, and calling as many small and local banks and credit unions in your chosen market to see which ones have an option that might be able to work for you. So one thing that I was thinking of when I saw that there was $40,000 to put available, and this would obviously depend on the market that you're into as far as how much would $40,000 get you, but you could use some of that money for the down payment. So that means you are going to be able to afford less property since you now have a smaller down payment and then use, um, you know, maybe the other half or a portion of that 40,000 to fund the rehab. Uh, with the rehab, you can also structure it with your contractors or if you're doing the work yourself that you will cover materials yourself that you will purchase them instead of having the contractor go and purchase and then bill you for the materials. And one of the advantages of doing that is that you're able to get 0% interest rate credit cards. So this is usually over a period of time. You have to be super diligent about, you know, credit card usage and maybe not have a history of collecting debt on your credit cards. But in this scenario, you want to be able to go and get a credit card. Uh, we did this recently for a property and we did a credit card that was 12 months, 0% interest. Over those 12 months, if you made the minimum payment 
on time for the 12 months. They actually extended it to a 0% for 18 months. Uh, we didn't end up needing the 18 months anyways, because the, the project had completed, we paid it off. But having a long time, just in case something does go wrong with your project, you're not you know, racking up this debt of material costs. And then all of a sudden you have a 22% interest rate that you're paying on the credit cards, but going through and putting those on and and then you would go and refinance the property and then pay off the credit cards would be that that last step to get rid of it. But it can be a huge advantage that you are getting your materials paid for at 0% and not borrowing any money from anyone. And that can be a huge chunk of your actual construction cost, your rehab cost. And then you would just have to come up with the cash to pay your contractors unless some of them do take credit card. We do work with some vendors like plumbing companies and stuff that they do actually, they'll send an invoice to email, which is through QuickBooks. And they actually have an option to pay by credit card too, if we wanted to. So it really depends on the contractor and vendors you're using, but that is definitely a a tool you can use is the 0% credit cards to cover a portion of that uh, rehab cost too. Yeah. I I think the other option uh, is to, you know, if you did want to bring someone else into the fold, like Nicole, let's say that you have someone in your life that maybe has, you know, whatever your, say your rehab budget is 50,000 bucks someone in your life that has $50,000 uh, that's just sitting in the bank account, you know, earning whatever single digit percentage. And you say that to this person, you know, Hey, John Doe, I'm going to give you 12%, you know, annualized returns. If you let me use this money, um, then you go out, you fund your rehab with that person's capital. And then at the end of the deal, you refinance and you pay that person off. So similar to the credit cards. Uh, but the benefit I think of the private money is that it is a little bit easier to use in all situations. So like most vendors, you know, if you've got cash, you know, from your, your private money lender, then you're going to be able to pay that person. Um, so again, we've used private money pretty extensively, uh, actually exclusively for all of our rehab projects. And it's worked out, I think, well for both parties. Okay. So our next question is from Rob Malloy. Okay, so Rob's question is, I just read Ashley Care's article on finding a partner and I had a couple questions about method number one. Ashley got a partner to purchase the duplex in cash. They split the cash flow 50-50 and she pays them 5.5% interest over 15 years for the purchase price without buyout option at any time. Why go this way? Is this more beneficial than financing through a bank to begin with? Reason I ask is that I'm looking at a duplex both sides already rented and the numbers seem to work if I go with 15% down and I just manage the property myself. What would you do? Does partner make sense? Thanks for taking the time. Okay. So this scenario, um, that Rob is talking about is my first ever partnership with Evan. And I had the limited belief at this point in time that you could not go to a bank to purchase an investment property. I just thought that you could only pay cash because the investor that I worked for, that's what he did. So I didn't even know there was an option to go to the bank. I would not do this scenario again now. Um, Tony and I I have been talking about this a lot lately as to the value of having experience and knowledge and other types of sweat equity um, that brings so much value to the table rather than just the money. And I didn't value myself enough at this point where I gave 50-50 partnership. So they got 50% of the cash flow. We eventually sold the property. So they got 50% of the profit of that property. And then they got five and a half percent interest 
plus all their money back that they had invested into the purchase price. So sweet deal for my partner on that. The thing with this is that it got me started. So if this is an option for you and this is maybe your only option, then yes, if that gets you into a deal, because me making that 50% of the cash flow was better than me making no money off of this property at all. So in Rob's situation, he's saying he's able to um, put 15% down and manage the property himself. So he must have found a bank that would allow him to do 15% down. Um, As far as managing the property yourself, if you're going to do that, make sure when you run the numbers, you're still adding in for a property management company. So research your areas, find out how much it would cost for a property manager in your area so that later on, if you do decide, you have the option to be able to go and um, hire a property management company and it's not going to kill your cash flow. I think the only thing I'd add there, Ash, is that uh, you know, for Robin, for everyone that's listening, Anytime you enter into a partnership, there there should be a reason why. Uh, you know, Ash and I talk about in in the partnership book about like you know your your missing puzzle piece. So ideally, you should be entering into a partnership because you're you're partnering with someone that has a complementary skill set, ability, resource uh, to to yourself. But if you have everything you need to do this first deal, then yeah, maybe it doesn't make sense for you to partner. Uh, so Rob, if you're in a position where you've already got the financing lined up, you've got the capital available, then yeah, maybe giving up 50% of your deal <laughs> doesn't make sense. Um, so I think every person should be assessing their own unique kind of personal situation, trying to understand where you feel that you have um, uh, maybe a, a shortcoming or, or, or where you're lacking or whether it's experience, money, time, whatever it is. And that's when you want to partner. But if you can check all those boxes for a deal, then yeah, it might make sense to move forward by, uh, by yourself. Next question is from Rhett Miller. How common is it as a buyer purchasing a cash only property is expected to pay closing costs? Isn't the seller supposed to pay closing or is that traditional financing typically? So this is a a great question because it really can go either way. Before we even talk about that, let's break down what some of the closing costs even are when doing a property. Yeah, you you read my mind. I was actually about to pull up my my last uh, closing disclosure here to look through what those those closing costs were. Um, So there typically are just like, you know, as a as an aside, there, there typically are more closing costs when you have financing, right? Because your lenders are going to require more paperwork and there's more things that they need and they got to get paid. Um, so a lot of times there is more, but um, I'm just going to kind of read through here and, and see what some of my my, clo- my closing costs were on this last flip that we recently sold. Um, so I had taxes. So there, there are taxes that were due uh, that I had to pay me as a seller. I had to pay those. Um, there was my payoff to my private money lenders, right? They were, I had uh, mortgage security documents recorded with the county. So before I could get paid, I had to make sure that my private money lenders were paid back their principal plus their interest. I had my real estate commissions. Uh, typically a seller will cover the commissions for both the uh, seller's agent, so for their own agent, and for the buyer's agent. So for this flip that I sold, that's what it was. Uh, mine was a total of 5% in commission. So 2.5% went to my agent. The other 2.5% went to the buyer's agent. Um, there's a bunch of title cost. Uh, I probably spent, I don't know, somewhere around uh, 3000 bucks, maybe a little bit more on everything related to, to title and escrow. Um, there's some county taxes, like just for 
paperwork and things like that. Uh, some additional kind of inspections for like uh, septic and natural hazard disclosures and things like that. Um, that was actually everything that was on this closing disclosure. So some of those things are going to be present no matter if you're going with financing or if you're going with cash. Um, but we actually also gave the buyer uh, a small credit because they had things on their end, like like an appraisal they still have to pay for. Um, there are points they might have to pay th- to their lender to, to close this deal. Um, so sometimes as a seller, you might also give credits to the buyer, which is what we did in this situation as well. But I feel like that's a, a decent idea of what you could expect to see uh, for closing costs on a, on a property transaction like that. Yeah. One thing too, depending on what state you're in, you may have to pay attorney fees to at closing. So in New York state, you have to use an attorney to close on a property. And usually it's, you know, the seller is paying their own attorney and the buyer is paying their own attorney too. And sometimes that would just be added into the closing cost. Um, or your attorney can actually bill you separately, but that's still going to cost you. And that's still money you need to have to to come up with the closing costs too. So I guess to answer the, the question in a nutshell for Rhett, because again, he's saying how common is it as a buyer um, to, to place some closing costs? So the answer is yes. There, there's still probably some closing costs you'll incur. Uh, definitely not as many as if you have uh, a mortgage or a lender that's kind of facilitating that transaction. But you can also negotiate with the seller to say, you know, hey, Mr. and Mrs. Seller, uh, I'm super interested in your property, but my one condition is that you cover all of my closing costs. <laughs> and, you know, depending on where we're at in the market cycle, they might say yes. And like I said, the last flip that we sold, we covered all of that buyer's closing costs because it still made sense for us, um, you know, to, to sell the property that way. So don't be afraid to ask, Rhett, I think, to have those costs covered. Um, and, you know, the worst I can say is no. Okay. We have a seller finance question next. And this is by Bill Rogers. So once you have a house under contract, how long until you are able to refinance? I know you don't want to do it right away, especially with these rates, but isn't that one of the ways you actually get sellers to do seller financing is for tax mitigation reasons? Is this something that would have to be written in the terms of the contract? Hey, so seller financing, we all love seller financing makes things way easier most of the time than going uh, to a bank and doing conventional financing. But the first question here is how long until you are able to refinance? So in Bill's situation, we're going to assume he's going and doing seller financing and then going to refinance out of the seller financing. So you can set it up however you and the seller agree, but you want to make sure that you have enough time that it's not too short of a time. Uh, So some banks require a seasoning purchase from when you purchase the property, a seasoning period. So it can be six to 12 months from the date of purchase. So you don't want to make your, you know, seller financing do, you know, you're only doing it over the course of three or four months. You want to make sure that you have enough time to go and do the refinance on the property. Uh, but really, you could set it up for, you know, Pace Morby. We've had him on the show. He talks a lot about seller financing and he's done 40 year terms where he doesn't, you know, he's paying the person for the next 40 years on the property and there is no rhyme or reason for him to go and refinance. So it's really all about how you set it up. You know, maybe if you do get a great rate um, interest rate with them or you have great terms where your payment is low enough that it works for the property. So when you structure the seller finance deal, you want to create an amortization schedule. So the amortization schedule is going to show you the full amount you're borrowing 
the monthly payments, how much of that monthly payment is principal, how much of that monthly payment is interest, and then what the balance would be due if you were to pay it off. So this is one way you can kind of negotiate with the seller too, is like, hey, look, over the course of one year, I'm going to be paying you an extra $10,000 in interest that you wouldn't get if I went to a bank. So Bill had mentioned the the tax mitigation reason, reason, the tax advantage of doing seller financing for a seller. But there's also ways that the seller actually makes more money because they can make the interest off of you too. Um, so he said something in here about how he doesn't know if he would go right away, especially with these rates. So if you can get a great rate and great terms from the seller, yeah, there is no reason to go and refinance, but you want to make sure in your contract that you have that. So what I do in uh, several of the times that I have done seller financing is I will do instead of a balloon payment. So a balloon payment is saying that you're going to do seller financing for 12 months. And then the balance that is left after you've made payments for 12 months is due in a balloon payment. You're paying that whole chunk. So that's where you typically, typically go and refinance with the bank. What I have done is you know, I try to push it out as long as possible, but I will do a loan callable date. So this would be in three years, the seller has the option to call the loan instead of a mandatory balloon payment. This is where the seller can say, you know what? No, keep making payments. I'm not going to call the loan. But anytime after that year three, they can call it, but they have to give me eight months written notice to be able to call the loan. And then I would have eight months to be, okay, I need to figure out how I'm going to go and refinance this and pay this off. But eight months will give me plenty of time to do that. So when you are writing up your contract with the seller, make sure you are putting in these kind of different exit strategies or things that you know work for you and the seller. And that's where I really like to get face-to-face for seller financing. Sit down and go through everything. When I I will send a seller the contract and the amortization schedule and as much information as I can the night before I'm meeting with them to give them some time to review it. And then I will sit down with them the next day and walk through the whole thing. So that way I can pick their brain as much as possible as to, okay, you don't agree to this. Let's figure out what we can change, what we can do. And I try to get down to you know, figure out what's their real motivation. What do they really want? And then just try to negotiate and adjust the contract right then and there um, to make it work. So that's the amazing thing with seller financing is you can set it up so many different ways. One thing I would really try to avoid is prepayment penalties. And a lot of commercial lenders will do this for banks where they will say, okay, we're doing this loan. But if you pay this loan off within the next five years, you're going to owe us 2% of whatever the balance is as a fee for paying this loan off early because we're banking on making this money off the interest. So if you can avoid that with sellers, then you can go and refinance at any time. And that keeps your options open, especially if you decide you want to go refinance because you want to tap into more equity to pull that out of the property. Or maybe rates do go a lot lower than what you're paying in seller refinancing. So you can go ahead and you know refinance to the better rate too. Yeah. What a what a world-class breakdown, Ash, on uh, on seller financing. 
Um, I think the, the only part of the question that that's probably still lingering there, and I, I just want to clarify a little bit is the, the tax mitigation piece. Um, so when, uh, to, to explain what, what Bill's talking about here, again, he says, um, isn't that one of the ways you actually get sellers to do seller financing as for tax mitigation reasons? Um, what he's referring to here is that when say that I, I'll use Ashley myself as, as an example, say that, uh, Ashley owns a property and you know, whatever, say she owns it free and clear and, uh, say the house is worth $300,000. If Ashley goes out and sells that property, uh, she'll have a, a taxable event, uh, on the net proceeds of that sale. Right. So again, say she, whatever, say she makes $300,000 if she were to sell that property in full. Uh, what some folks now, obviously there, there are some ways to get around that. You could do like a 1031 exchange or some, something to that effect, but, um, say she wanted to avoid that big taxable event for selling that property as she still wanted to tap into that equity. The reason that seller financing becomes attractive to folks in Ashley's situation is because say I come to her and say, Ashley, look, if you sell this property to John Doe, you're going to have, you know, $300,000, uh, you know, taxable event that you have to worry about. If you sell or finance it to me, the only money that will be taxable is the is the payments that I'm making to you on a monthly basis. So instead of you know, say I agree to buy her property and it's like a, a two thousand dollar a month payment, now she's only paying taxes on twenty four thousand dollars a year versus the three hundred thousand dollars per year that she get if she sold the property. So for some people, there is a tax incentive to um, to not you know, cash out on day one and instead take those payments over time. Now I'm not a CPA. Uh, forgive me if I explained some of that incorrectly, but it, it, at least it gives you an idea there. There's a tax benefit to deferring that big lump sum payment and instead taking it in small chunks. Yeah. And there's also some great books on tax strategies for specifically real estate investors. If you go to the bigger pockets bookstore, uh, Amanda Hahn has written two really great books for bigger pockets about uh, tax strategies. One's just very basic knowledge we recommend for the rookie investors. And then there's also um, an advanced tax strategies book. Um, I think it's tax strategies for the savvy real estate investor is what it's called. But if you go to the bigger pockets bookstore, you can find it on there. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Rookies, 2024 is the year to start protecting your rental properties with an LLC. But you don't have to do all the paperwork and filing yourself. Corporate Direct is your professional and affordable option for getting your LLC done right. They handle the state filings, draft your operating agreement, and act as your registered agent. They'll even help you comply with the Corporate Transparency Act 
a new federal disclosure law affecting every real estate investor. Corporate Direct is a family business founded by attorney, author, and rich dad advisor Garrett Sutton over 35 years ago. Now, his son Ted is a licensed attorney working with him. Together, they've helped thousands of real estate investors form and maintain their LLCs and protect their assets. If you're trying to build a real estate portfolio, do not skip the LLC. Head over to corporatedirect.com slash biggerpockets to schedule a free 15-minute consultation with an incorporating specialist. Mention Real Estate Rookie and get a $100 discount on your formation. That's corporatedirect.com slash biggerpockets. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages. Until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right, get high-quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do-not-call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com bp. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. Hiring? Your search is over. Really, there's no need to search. Match instead with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates super fast. Ditch the busy work, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to hire top talent faster. Speaking of top talent, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. But why do I love Indeed? Because I'm busy and scrolling through 300 resumes is not helping my business grow. It's actually making it slow. With Indeed, I can hire faster and know I'm getting someone who can do the job. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to post your jobs with more visibility at Indeed.com slash rookie. Just go to Indeed.com slash rookie right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash rookie. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Okay, and our last question today is from Denise Bittenger. This question is, what's the best way to structure a first-time partnership? And Tony, I know you have our book there. If you want to hold it up. <laughs> I do. Uh, so for those of you that don't know, hopefully you know by now, but Ash and I have co-authored a book uh, published by Bigger Pockets called Real Estate Partnerships, How to Access More Cash, Acquire Bigger Deals, and Achieve Higher Profits. And uh, the book is available for you to purchase. So head over to biggerpockets.com slash partnerships, and you guys can get all the, the nitty gritty about how Ash and I structure our partnerships and use partnerships and avoid partnership pitfalls. Um, but th- yeah, there, there's a lot uh, about partnership structure. Um, so I, I guess the first thing that I'll say is that there, there is no right or wrong way to structure a partnership at the end of the day, as long as you're not breaking any laws, um, you and your partner can agree to whatever terms, uh, both, or at least make the both of you happy. Now there, there are some things I think to consider 
when you're putting a partnership together. And I'll, I'll call out some of those. Um, I think the first thing I'll say though, is that there's, there's also two types of partnerships and people kind of, I think usually just think of one, but you have debt partnerships, uh, and you have equity partnerships and a debt partnership. There's the money person and there's the like sweat equity person, right? So one person is just going to loan the money. The other person is going to do all the work and the person who's doing all the work will pay some kind of fixed return back to the person that's, that's lending the money. Uh, I'd say the majority of partnerships that, uh, we see in that, that a lot of the rookie investors do are, are actual equity partnerships. And within an equity partnership, there's several ways to, um, to structure, I guess at least like several levers you can kind of look at. Um, so the, the first thing you want to think about is the distribution of labor. Okay. Every project that you think about should have some sort of distribution of labor. It could be that one person is going to do all the work. It could be that you guys are going to split it down the middle. It could be that one person is going to do 75%. The other person is going to do 25%. But you want to do your best to think about how are we distributing labor between the both of us. And the reason this is important is because if one person is doing more work in that partnership, then ideally they should be compensated more for that. Uh, if you guys are splitting everything down the middle and the time commitment on the labor side is equal, then it makes sense to you know, have your equity and profit distributions kind of match that. But I think the first thing to consider is like, Hey, how are we divvying up the labor? The second thing to consider is the actual capital. Are you both bringing capital? Is one person bringing the capital? Uh, is it, you know, split down the middle? Is one person bringing 80%? The other person is bringing 20%. How are you divvying up the capital that's needed to purchase this deal? The kind of second piece of the capital is the mortgage itself. If you're going out and getting debt, are both of you going to carry the mortgage? Is one person going to carry the mortgage? Like, how will will the actual debt be structured? So you want you want to start thinking about all the different roles that each person will play inside of that partnership, and then try and assign a value to each one of those roles that that that, that each person is playing. And ideally, you want to get to some kind of structure that accurately represents the amount of effort and value that each person is is putting towards uh, the partnership. Now, I'll say a lot of my deals are just straight fifty fifty. Right. Uh, we have partners that bring the capital. They carry the mortgage. We do everything else. Uh, and we split it down the middle. And it's been a, a, you know, mutually beneficial arrangement for both of us. Uh, we have some deals where we brought a little bit of the capital and, uh, maybe we charge a property management fee and as opposed to taking a bigger equity stake. So th there's a bunch of different levers you can pull. Um, but I think the, the most important thing is identifying who's doing what and trying to assign values. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, Ash? Yeah. And I think that's actually the hardest thing, especially for rookie investors or even going into a different strategy where maybe it's your first time doing the strategy and you don't know exactly what effort or time it's going to take for the roles that you're going to be performing um, for the property. So one thing I would suggest is that when you are doing the operating agreement, maybe you could put in there some kind of clause where after one year, it becomes you know, you have that discussion as to, okay, do we need to actually change things as to, you know, now you're going to be paid a hundred dollars per month for bookkeeping or something like that. I think leave your options open so that you in your partnership agreement, there is room for change. Um, especially if you're going to be doing a buy and hold property where maybe you're both doing a lot of the rules and responsibilities is to, you know, look at it every year and be like, okay, this is something I don't want to do anymore. What can we do? What can we change for this? Um, but definitely sitting down and figuring out what your partner, what is fair, because there is no, as long as it's legal, 
there is no wrong way to structure your partnership. As we just went over, um, it was a second question that we went over today for rookie reply. Uh, my first partnership. And that was like awful for me. Like I <laughs> did all the work and I got the least amount of benefit from it, but it got me started. It got me in that deal. And honestly, like that property wasn't a ton of cash flow. I mean, we ended up having, you know, I had no money into the deal and I was making, you know, hundred bucks a month or whatever. So it's like, okay, if I got a little bit more equity, it'd be 20 more dollars a month. (laughs) But to have that opportunity to get into that first deal, that was what was important to me at the time. And I really wanted to prove myself and like show my partner that I knew what I was doing. And the way for me to do that is to really like put up more safeguards for him to get his money back. Um, in the property and to have it be an advantage for him, an opportunity for him. So I think just really look and understand what's important to you. Like, what do you really want out of this deal and the partnership that you're going to do? And then go and talk to your partner and see what's really important to them. And from there, you can structure it. There's just so many different options you have. And if this is your first time partnering with this person, make sure that you're setting it up, that you're dating them. You know, maybe you're just doing a joint venture agreement. You're not committing to an LLC where you're you're going to buy 10 properties over the next year. You're going to do one property and see how it goes. And then, you know, maybe you can branch off and add on from there, depending how that is. But um, in the book, we do go over some case studies. And Tony has talked about before how he actually walked away from a, a flip he was doing with a partner or it was a a burr, right? To be a Mm -hmm. short-term rental, not a flip. Yeah. So he walked away from that long-term commitment with that partner just because it didn't feel right. And having those kind of exit strategies in place, I think are almost more important than the actual structure and the benefits of it. Yeah. uh, Super important point, Ashley. And I'm I'm glad you finished with that. I I think the the only other thing I'd add is, and you talk about this a lot as well, but it's like, as you, as you kind of think through what every person's going to be doing, um, you know, uh, you have some options on how you compensate. So for example, in one of our partnerships, we took a reduced equity stake of only 25%, but we also charged a property management fee of 15% of gross revenues. So, uh, you know, we, we're compensating ourselves for the work that we're doing in the property with that 15% management fee, which is a slight discount from what you see in that market. Most Airbnb short-term rental hosts are charging 25, 20 to 25% at least. So we gave a slight discount to the, to the property. Um, but then we also retained 25% equity because we, we put up 25% of the capital. Um, so just, just think through like, Hey, you know, who's going to be doing property management? If there's rehab, who's going to be managing that bookkeeping and accounting, finding the actual deals, analyzing those deals, um, you know, managing the, the tenants, the guests, whoever, there's a lot of different roles to go into that. And you can either say, Hey, I'm going to compensate, compensate myself for doing this work by, uh, charging a property management fee, or I'm going to pay myself a, a, uh, an hourly fee, or maybe it's a, a, a fixed flat uh, amount per month for doing the bookkeeping, but just, you know, try and think through what those look like and, and try and work that into, into your, into your partnership. Uh, I think the last thing I'll, I'll add is when it comes to the, the capital side, uh, two important things that you want to discuss. And this is me assuming, cause I, I, I think in, in this question, uh, she said, uh, Denise said, hopefully finding a partner because they don't have the capital. So it sounds like you want some, someone to bring all the capital. The, the other questions you'll, you'll want to ask yourself, Denise are, um, what is your method for paying that person back if there is one? 
So we have some partnerships where there is no payback, right? It's like, hey, you're putting in your $50,000 and that's your contribution to the partnership because I'm doing everything else. We have one partnership where there is a mechanism for that partner to get paid back. Um, so, you know, and Ashley's example of her first partnership, that partner essentially had like a, a loan against their partnership. So they got back a fixed amount every single month uh, before any profits were distributed. So you could do it that way if you wanted to. Uh, in our partnership, it only, uh, the capital recapture is what it's called, only kicks in if we refinance or sell the property. So just think about like, hey, are, are, are we going to want to pay this person back the 50K? You don't have to, but it is something that's, uh, that's kind of important to, to think through. And the last piece on the capital side is, uh, how would you handle potential shortfalls in revenue? So, uh, you know, one of our, our Louisiana properties, we had a massive shortfall, uh, because our, you know, we had this crazy, uh, you know, you guys probably know the Shreveport story. But we had this this crazy increase in our our homeowners insurance, and then we tried to sell the house, and we ended up finding foundation issues. Um, so when things like that happen, is it the partner who contributed the capital that's going to be covering one hundred percent of that cost? Will you split that fifty fifty? Will you split it seventy five twenty five? So just think about those little details as well to to really kind kind of uh, hopefully uh, avoid some of those more difficult conversations before they happen. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us on this week's Rookie Reply. Don't forget to check out Tony and I's new book at the Bigger Pockets bookstore. That's biggerpockets.com slash partnerships. Okay. I'm Ashley at Wealth from Rentals, and he's Tony J. Robinson at Tony J. Robinson on Instagram. And we will be back on Wednesday with a guest. Getting started in real estate can be daunting. There's so much to know, obstacles to overcome, lessons to learn, and risks to avoid. It can all be so overwhelming. If you're feeling motivated to invest, but too overwhelmed to take action, here's some advice. Take it one step at a time. And here's some good news for you. The Rookie Bootcamp is starting on May 20th, and Tyler and Ashley will be guiding you through each and every step until you're the proud, confident owner of your first investment property. Through eight action-packed weeks, they'll guide you step-by-step through those first questions, decisions, and obstacles that every beginner investor must overcome. So if you're serious about becoming an investor this year, head to biggerpockets.com step and join us in the Rookie Bootcamp. See you there. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.